Welcome to the return of the Primal Endurance Podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns, and we are going on a journey to a kinder, gentler, smarter, more fun, more effective way to train for ambitious endurance goals. Visit primalendurance.fit to join the community and enroll in our free video course. Hey, I want to tell you about Schwank Grills. This is a revolutionary portable gas infrared grill that uses the exact same heating technology as the world's best steakhouses. You heat up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit to grill the juiciest steak you've ever tasted in as little as three minutes. Can you believe it? That's right. You do not have to go to those crowded, noisy, super overpriced steakhouses anymore when you have the same technology in your backyard. And the Schwank portable infrared grill is not just for steak. You can make chicken wings hamburgers, seafood, lobster, vegetables. I make salmon in three minutes. They even have a pizza stone accessory. I want you to visit their very informative and mouth-watering website at schwankgrills.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-K. Everything you cook, faster, juicier. The speed is so important, so convenient. Uh, There's a drip tray on the bottom, so you let the juices drip down. I love the bison burger, the venison burgers. That's my game. And then you can add a mixture of butter, spices, whatever you want, into the tray. Pour it back onto your meat or your salmon for a huge improvement in flavor. Are you getting hungry? I am. (laughs) Let's go to schwankgrills.com, S-C-H-W-A-N-K, grills.com, and up your home cooking game. This is a -a one-of-a-kind grill. I have a great discount code for you, of course. It's BRAD150 to save $150 off your purchase of a Schwank grill. Hey, listeners, I'm so pleased to introduce my conversation from years ago 2016 with Zach Bitter. And what's so cool about that is that he was just getting going back then. He took off from his substitute teacher gig in Sacramento, California to meet me in person up at the finish line of the Western States 100 mile run in Auburn. He'd already had some great performances back then. He was getting known as a a fat adapted, keto adapted endurance athlete. So he was one of the early pioneers in that area in the ultra running scene, along with two-time Western States champion, Timothy Olson. Uh, But Zach was just getting on the map, dreaming of a professional career in ultra marathon running, which really didn't exist back then. But look what's happened to this uh, athlete's career progression. It's absolutely been astonishing. And with the progression of his own career, we have seen an incredible progression in the popularity and the sophistication of ultra running as a sport. So That's great for the leading athletes like Zach because now he's able to make a legitimate full-time career out of it, which he deserves to, uh, training at that level. I mean, these guys are training uh, as hard or uh, on a par with any other athlete in any sport in the history of sports. I mean, you cannot believe the training load uh, in an impact sport like running. Uh, The Tour de France guys certainly train hard and are on the bike all day. But running 120, 130, 140 miles per week, week in and week out, and then competing at the 100-mile competition level, or even those 200-mile longer crazy events, it's pretty amazing. Uh, The great thing about Zach is he's very knowledgeable, informed, well-spoken. He's a true uh, enthusiast of peak performance in every way. 
and he has a great podcast. So I strongly encourage you to go over there and listen to the great content that he puts out on the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, but to get a sense of the level that he's performed at uh, over the years as he's progressed with his career, he set the world record in the 100-mile run. Uh, this is on an indoor track, running laps and laps on an indoor track. He clocked a time of 11 hours and 40 minutes to run 100 miles. That is an average pace per mile of 648. I want you to go out on your next run. You could put your smartwatch on or go to the track and run four laps and get a sense of what it feels like to run a 648. If you can even run a 648, <laughs> how about a, a 324 for half a mile? It's moving. It's clicking along. And he did that for 100 miles. He also set an amazing world record of 100 miles on a treadmill in 12 hours and 18 minutes. Imagine running on a treadmill. Next time you complain uh, about your boring workout because you, uh, you had to hit the treadmill for 40 minutes because it was icy and snowing outside, think about Zach not only staying on the belt for 12 hours, but running just over seven minutes per mile over and over and over. Absolutely phenomenal endurance machine. So we get to hear from him about uh, his background, his philosophy about training, and you're going to learn a lot from this guy. Uh, one takeaway that I had from him in a recent conversation uh, when we were talking about the popularity of the minimalist shoe movement, I've been such a big fan for so many years, um, but he had a great insight that I've implemented into my own training, which was that he's a big uh, fan of minimalist shoes as well, but he likes to rotate in cushy shoes now and then to give his feet a break and kind of transfer the impact load to a, in a different manner when you're wearing the puffy shoes. And so I went out and got myself the puffiest possible shoes I could find. And I used those for my, uh, my 13 hour hike on the Cactus to Clouds route in Palm Springs. Uh, it was a 22 mile epic adventure that lasted all day starting at 3.30 in the morning. And my feet felt great. And I suspect if I had been wearing Vibrams, I probably could have done it because I'm well adapted. I've been wearing them for years, uh, but who knows what my feet might've felt like at the end. And so I've uh, had a recent practice of doing mostly minimalist footwear with my workouts, uh, with my everyday life. And then on occasion, especially when my feet feel beat up uh, the day after a high jump workout or a sprint workout, I will slip on the pillow shoes and with a big smile and not feel uh, embarrassed or that I'm departing from my strong commitment to the barefoot and the minimalist shoe lifestyle. And that's just a great little tidbit that I got from Zach much more to come. Here he is, Zach Bitter, old school Zach Bitter. Host Brad Kearns here in Auburn, California at the finish line, near the finish line of the Western States 100 trail running capital. Thanks for joining us in Auburn. It is Zach Bitter, the fat burning beast himself. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Brad. It's been uh, a pleasure to follow you guys uh, online and now be on the show. <laughs> Coming alive from the pages of the book Primal Endurance. And I think the the intriguing thing, if you read in chapter four about the faster study and how you came out burning an incredible percentage of fat, an incredible rate of fat burning per minute that was beyond what was previously believed to be the human limit. So mm -hmm. why don't we start there and tell us about this experience with the faster study sure. and what they were studying and uh, how it came out. Yeah, so I think the big goal of the faster study was to find out like what is the difference in uh, your your energy oxidation rates between carbohydrates and fats 
in well-trained endurance athletes. So folks who would have already maximized the amount of fat metabolizing rate they could achieve through a training stimulus. Um, so now we wanted to add to that, what on top of that does diet do? Um, so we had a group of high carbohydrate uh, athletes and a group of high fat athletes as well. And we paired them up uh, to uh, kind of test these differences. And I think one so of the high carb diet, mm-hmm. so they've reported they're eating high carb for a long time. Yep. And then you have these reported high fat eaters for mm-hmm. a long time. So they're coming into the study totally disparate the way they're getting to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, they were equal ability. These were all elite level people, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they basically looked at the ultra running community and tried to find uh, willing participants that had, had you know, won events and you know, finished high level at these, some of these events. And, and wants to run for three hours three straight hours on a treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so they basically collected a bunch of data between muscle biopsies, fat biopsies, blood draws. We put on the, the oxygen mask thing um, during the treadmill session as well as the VO2 max test. And, um, and uh, it's gathered all the information on, like, rates of fat metabolization during during these these uh, – the, this uh, these events and uh the thing they discovered uh that i think is most interesting to people is that folks who are eating a high fat diet uh are able to metabolize much higher rates of fat during uh varying intensity levels throughout the course of uh of a race or a training training program so um you know it's uh it's a really eye-opening piece of information that that we can use to take to the training table and kind of decide like what can i do outside of just the act of running or um competing in order to improve myself uh along the way uh, so i guess the, uh, we'll get to the study in a sec but it seems like the overall goal is if you you can get better and better at burning fat mm-hmm. you're going to need less ingested calories Mm -hmm. and it sounds like from stuff we talked about uh off camera um you're also noticing improvements in recovery Mm -hmm. um and and all these kind of things yeah yeah so i think it's definitely twofold you're in the event and then after the event and in the workout and after the workout and stuff like that and um from what i've noticed uh you know from the faster study is that you know my my metabolize my my rate of fat metabolization which I think peaked at 1.56 grams per minute, you know, which is double average um, and 50% higher than the, what they used to think was the highest you could possibly get. Um, and I wasn't even the highest burning one there. There was guys who did higher than that. And just knowing that like, you can manipulate that with your diet certainly puts you in a position to not have to ingest as much during a race so you're not diverting as much blood to digestion during an event if you're not eating as much. Um, and being able to kind of rely on that energy source that you have uh, relatively unlimited supply of, which is your body fat storage. So you're burning a gram and a half of fat per minute. Mm-hmm. That's uh, 13, 14 calories. Yep. That's 600, that's, that's eight or 900 cal- calories per hour yeah. of fat. Mm-hmm. So basically a, a 900 calorie per hour effort is, is uh, that, that, that's, that's pretty aggressive. Sure. So yeah. in other words, you don't need carbohydrate yeah pretty much even going part, even yeah. going fast mm-hmm. um you talked on your blog zachbitter.com in detail about what you consume during the national 100k championship where you're running 630 miles for hours and hours and hours mm-hmm. and you were throwing down what, what did i see in there mountain dew and yeah. this and that yeah. and one oreo cookie <laughs> it's very good go read it people but you're you're topping off the tank when you're going <laughs> full gas mm-hmm. but when you're in the lab running a comfortable pace you're essentially what we talk about as a fat burning beast, you mm-hmm. can go on and on. And you also told me off camera about your 
Western States pacing experience where, mm-hmm. how far was that and how, how much did you eat along the, along the way? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I always run these little tests on myself because I'm very much, I like, I like to think that I've got an open mind and want to try different things on myself. And I see that I'm an individual, so I need to try it on myself as opposed to say, oh, it worked for them. I must work for me kind of a thing. And, you know, when I, when I went to, I paced a friend at Western States for the last 38 miles, I wanted to see like, you know, how good would I feel when I was just taking in water and electrolytes and, um, you know, it was about eight, eight and a half hours out there. And, um, you know, I, I basically took in nothing but water and electrolytes. I, I grabbed a handful of fruit at an aid station one time. And other than that, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was just, we we're just moving through and I didn't feel really any difference at that low intensity. And, um, so it's just one of those things where like, you, know, you go out and you kind of see like your level of fat adaptation like in real time as opposed to in a lab because you know the interesting thing too is like you look at like a pace so like at Mad City my pace held consistent or like my pace held consistent at the faster study you're not deviating you're not like burning any matches so to speak by doing a fast surge and then backing off or anything like that where in a race you might especially if it's a hilly course where you're going to power up a hill and you might go anaerobic for a bit mm. and then have to try to come back down you know so like um, being able to see that uh, fat adaptation kind of work even in, uh, in 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 the real live environment is always kind of nice to kind of quantify what what you're doing. <laughs> so if you can go uh, 38 miles over extreme hill canyons heat with no calories, uh, you're pretty much fat adapted. Would you say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'd say that's a good good measuring stick. <laughs> Maybe how about sitting at your desk and going without calories for eight and a half hours right. is still a challenge for many people. For sure. Yeah, yeah. People bonk at work every day. <laughs> every day. That's why there's vending machines <laughs> at, and napping areas. Yes, mm-hmm. napping pods like at Google. Right. Uh, and I think that's the most intriguing thing for a lot of people about the lifestyle is that you have this steady supply of energy that you can rely on. Um, and you know, when you're sitting at a desk or like moving very little, your demands for a high octane source of fuel, like carbohydrates are non-existent. So like if you can train your body to be able to tap into that, then you're doing yourself a lot of favors in terms of not having that two or three o'clock in the afternoon, like, Oh, I need another cup of coffee or I need to take a nap or something like that. You, you've got that steady stream of energy throughout the day. Um, let's go back to your beginnings in the ultra scene where you were uh, carbohydrate-fueled just like everybody else mm-hmm. and going for, uh, what was your, your guideline for racing? How many calories were you putting in? What were you using? And then mm-hmm. what did you notice? Yeah, I was always aiming for like a, like three to 400 calories an hour, and I felt like I did better on the high end, so I would always try to hit 400. And you know, basically that was like, I looked at the literature and it's like, that's what you can handle any more than that your body can't process. And, like, and I felt any less than that, I'm leaving something on the table, so to speak. So that's kind of what I aimed at. And I I guess, I mean, I I never had a huge issue with digestion on on the course. So I just pounded it. Like, you know, it sat all (laughs) right. What were you consuming? Like, oh, everything, like any sports drink, like soda, things like that, gels, all kinds of stuff like that. Like, you know, I've since moved to what I think is a higher product fuel and X Endurance. But uh, at that time, it was like, you know, just whatever, whatever was high sugar, like super quick energy source type of thing, Um, you know, and. And what I noticed was I didn't have trouble. My tr- most people figure out they need to make a change because they find themselves like at the end of the race puking or going to the bathroom a bunch of times. But I, I didn't really have that experience. My experience was more so in day-to-day life. Like I noticed my recovery was slowing down. Um, I was getting like inflammation and swelling in, in my ankles and waking up at night and things like that. So I knew something wasn't uh, sustainable. And, oh, you know, so... 
you're feeling these symptoms mm-hmm. and you're also hitting it hard and you're doing crazy ultra schedule like a lot of the elites do. Yep. Mm-hmm. So when did you think, hey, maybe I should fool around with my diet? So it was probably in about, in 2011, I did uh, 350 milers in nine weeks. And uh, yeah, and I mean, that was on top of like, you know, my, my 100 plus mile a week training programs and things like that. So I was definitely starting to, to feel it and kind of like, uh, you know, notice some of those uh, abnormalities, I guess, like outside of the actual training. And, um, you know, that's when I decided, you know, do I need to scale back the training and racing to make this sustainable or is there something else I can do? And, you know, I really love that lifestyle. So I didn't really want to scale back much if I didn't have to. And, um, so I looked at nutrition first and, you know, before that, my, my mindset was basically, you know, I'm out there burning two, three times my resting metabolic rate on some of these higher training days. So I just, you know, supplemented that additional calorie source with high levels of carbohydrate. So what I basically did is I took a large chunk of that carbohydrate fuel source and replaced it with dietary fat. Um, and I right away started to notice a lot of those symptoms going away, like the swelling, the prolonged recovery periods, um, you know, the waking up at night type of thing. Uh, that all kind of went away pretty quick. And then, you know, within about four weeks or so, I started noticing that the switch in energy, uh, the, the switch in uh, fat as fuel as opposed to carbohydrate as fuel during training um, wasn't, wasn't impacting me in a negative way in terms of slowing me down or anything like that. So there's definitely a transition period, but after about a month or so, a little less than a month, it was pretty much smooth sailing. Okay. So you battled through that transition period. Uh, are you slowing your training down to make sure that's, uh, going hand in hand with your transition to a high fat diet? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people do better by like, not doing much training at all during that phase mm. um, because you, you want to induce as little stress as possible during that phase. So that mm. metabolic switch is going to happen much quicker in a stress-free environment. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I definitely was at a point where my season was over. I didn't need to do any speed work or anything like that. You know, I, I was, uh, you know, doing some easy running and stuff like that. So I was, I was running every day, I think, or most days, uh, but at a very casual rate. And, you know, what I noticed is in those, uh, those, two to four weeks or so when I first started, there were a couple days where I'd feel really, really, really low on energy. Um, you know, I'd, I'd go out for a run and I'd feel like I was running a lot harder and my pace was actually slower than what I normally would do an easy run at. And, huh. you know, after about two to four weeks of that though, like, you know, it wasn't every day. It was like maybe three days out of the week would I'd have a day like that. Um, and then, I, but after about two to four weeks, it, it flipped over and every day was pretty consistent. You know, my easy pace was back to where it normally was. And, you know, the only difference was I would, instead of eating copious amounts of carbohydrate, I was supplementing my, my meals and, and snacks with, with higher fat sources of food. Okay, so you're, you're increasing your fat intake mm-hmm. at the same time you're trying to cut carbs, yep. which I assume make it a lot easier. You're not hungry and walking around thinking about a pint of ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's when you're training hard on a high carb diet, I feel like you're thinking about food and eating all day long. Um, and you're always kind of hungry. And you always get, I remember, um, I've talked to other, other guys who've made a similar switch to me. It's like, you remember these times where you do a huge training block and you're full, your stomach is physically full, but you're still getting hunger pangs, which is just a miserable place to be. Cause like, I don't want to put anything else in, in my, down my, down my throat. Um, but you get these hunger pangs still. So like that, that type of thing is, is gone. Like you, you literally can metabolize body fat or dietary fat 
um, which is much lower in volume too, which I like because if I'm doing like a two a day training block, I don't want to have a full stomach going mm. into that last training. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I'm doing high level training, I don't want to be skipping meals either. So having that like empty stomach feeling is always kind of nice for a, for a workout for sure, or even just a an easy long run or something like that. Mm. Okay, so then you get into the race situation, mm-hmm. and as you detail on your blog, um, you're you're uh, fine tuning. Uh, especially when you're going at a fast pace with whatever carb intake you feel feel you need, mm-hmm. how's that strategy work? Uh, it work. It's basically what I did is uh, you know rather than like zoning in on this like 400 calories an hour like what I used to do, you know I've I've bumped that back way lower to you know closer to 100 to 200 calories an hour. Um, this is going full bore national championships, running 6:30 miles all day long. So. Even that is it's very few calories, mm-hmm. uh, but you're probably a guy who needs more calories than anyone behind you in the field because you're running close, you know, you're running the faster pace. Right, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you, I look at the numbers in the lab and I, I feel like I probably need less than I actually do. But then on the other hand, you know, it's one of those things where I don't, I'm not doing a whole lot of negatives to go from 100 to 150. Um, I think I'd be doing some negatives if I went from like 100 to 400, that's just adding way too much extra like oxidative stress from the carbohydrate and uh-huh. you know, digestive type you know, processes. So for me, it's like I always I err a little bit on the side of caution um, and, take in, and I just try to trickle in carbohydrates really slowly um, throughout the course of the day at a very low rate. Uh, you know, and like at Mad City, like you're describing, it was somewhere around 150 calories an hour is what felt right and felt comfortable and um, even energy levels all day kind of thing. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green. 
please visit paluva.com. That's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code Brad Podcast and get ten percent off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Um, so you bring up another point when you said the oxidative stress mm-hmm. from consuming the carbohydrate. Yeah. So we have these guys, let's say, that came in the faster study. Mm-hmm. These are top performing guys. They're winning races. They're wearing uh, olive wreaths on their head. They're they're champs. <laughs> but down the line, and Maffetone talks about this too, mm-hmm. is like, let's see how long their career will last. Let's see how often they get injured, sick, burnt out. And so it it seems like you can make it work sliming those carbs if you're lucky and you don't have those stomach problems that are leaving you on the sideline. Mm-hmm. But like you report, you didn't have uh, the, the, the massive digestive difficulties, but you noticed the swollen ankles and waking up at night and these little things that were indicative of an overly stressful, as you say, unsustainable lifestyle. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a study that's less talked about too. They did a study on oxidative stress at Western States in 2012. That was kind of the precursor to the faster study. And I think, I think this study actually was what ultimately got like interest in the, the faster study getting its funding and getting its ability to be put on and stuff. And what it was, was they were looking at the oxidative stress of ultra runners who are taking a high, high fat diet route or a high carb route. And it was just like the rates of fat oxidation. It was like mind-boggling how much of a range it was. Like oh, really? Some of the high-fat athletes came back and like they didn't look like there was a whole lot of oxidative stress at all, really. And then the high-carb folks, it looked like there was just some like, real horrible things going on. <laughs> so they were actually drawing blood during the yeah. race or yep. urine? They, well, and looking at- I'm trying to think if they did blood. I can't remember if they did. I don't think they did blood during the race. They did like saliva swaps. Though. Okay. So um, they did some blood draws before and after, though, too, just to kind of get some baseline markers. Wow. And then, uh, you know, they didn't want to interfere too much with the event or the, the participants in the event. And they probably would have had a hard sell trying to get people to do blood draws in the middle of what some people would consider a chance of a lifetime to run Western states. So they did the, the, um, they did the saliva swabs during. And then I think for like seven days after, you kept saliva swabbing and sealing them, freezing them, mailing them in. Uh, and like, yeah, Dr. Volick and Dr. Finney were the ones who headed that up. And, you know, it was, it was pretty impressive to see the oxidative stress difference, which, you know, goes right into the recovery phase. Like if you generate tons of oxidative stress during an event, it's going to take you longer to bounce back and be ready for another go. Whereas if you limit that, you know, you feel like you get stronger after it almost. It's just really quicker. Um, you know, and you look at like the, the inflammation factor of metabolizing a carbohydrate compared to metabolizing a fat, and that's hugely different too. So it would stand to reason that for me, my inflammation would go down and my, my swelling would go down when I'm not you know, causing, generating those high inflammatory oxidative stress type responses from fueling the majority of my, my uh, workouts with carbohydrates. Well, you have the recovery factor, and then you also have the, the life factor and the <laughs> aging factor. Yeah. And we detailed this in the book that um, if you're training in a chronic pattern and consuming that high carbohydrate, carbohydrate dependency eating pattern, mm-hmm. you are literally accelerating the aging process due to your pursuits of endurance sports, which are seemingly healthy and you have fit looking people on the starting line. Mm-hmm. But we now know that um, they're not immune from cardiovascular damage, heart disease risk, and also just the, the breakdown and the burnout from doing something that's it's inherently stressful to go 100 miles, yeah. and then you're throwing sugar on top of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're already doing something that is relatively like 
non-typical for the human body. I think, <laughs> I think the human body is definitely designed to run and run long distances at slow rates. Um, but 100 miles is probably stretching your luck a little. There's not a whole lot of like reason to really do a hard 100 miles in any scenario. <laughs> so like, yeah, when you're, when you're taking something that's already probably tempting fate a little bit uh, and topping it off with something that's going to just exasperate the problem, it's like kind of want to try to eliminate as many of those as you can. <laughs> uh, and this is great from uh, Finney and Volek's work, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate uh, Living and Performance, mm -hmm. um, detailing that the science is showing when you're in that ketogenic state, uh, to, to make an extreme example of, mm -hmm. you know, really restricting the dietary carbs, um, it has a, a potent anti-inflammatory effect uh, it, it known to be at the level of the most powerful drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy, the difference. And you know, I've had some blood work done when I'm in uh, like a low-carb phase of training, like a really low like ketosis level. And you know, my, infl my inflammation markers are incredibly low. Like, and so, you're in the middle of a 100-mile training week yeah, and the whole thing? Uh -huh, yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Some t I've had a couple where like um, I've come off like a huge training block where it's like, a, like where it would almost simulate like doing a race to some degree. So you would think that's when those, those inflammatory markers would be the highest and like, you know, they're still like really low as long as I've got those carbs down down at, you know, during the recovery phase. Um, so what's your routine like? You Are you making a concerted effort to get in that ketogenic state, getting your carbs under 50 or 75 grams a day, or do you go back and forth? Yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely range a bit depending on what I'm doing. Uh, when I'm in my high-intensity, high-volume training phases, I'm definitely bringing the carbohydrates back uh, um, for no other reason than to seek better performance. <laughs> Um, you know, if I were looking at it wow. from a health standpoint, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but then I'm always trying to kind of put a check on that process. It's so funny what he just said because, <laughs> you know, the, the opposite has been said so many times. Like, I upped the carbs for no other reason but for better performance. <laughs> and now this guy is saying he's lowering the carbs to better performance. And he's winning national championships. So let's pause for a commercial for Zach Bitter himself at ZachBitter.com. <laughs> Setting us straight and getting rid of those carbs to improve your performance. Yeah, it's 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 mind blowing because it's changing every all the parameters that we've previously thought about, which was, I guess, essentially how good at, how good are you at sparing glycogen or slamming down gels mm -hmm. um, in order to uh, stay with the, the pack in front of you. Yeah, yeah, and you're walking that fine line both during the race. Like, am I gonna, am I gonna, my gut gonna fail me, or am I gonna have to stop like twenty times? <laughs> Is this gonna be my lucky day? Right. Not? Yeah. Yeah. So you're yeah. always kind of walking that fine line when you're depending on that high level of, of fuel intake during a race, and you know that's just looking at it in, on the surface too. If it gets, if it gets hot out, it makes it even harder. Like your body gets even worse at being able to stomach things. That's where you see a lot of people's stomach turns are on these hotter races where uh -huh. they go through like the canyons at Western States. And you know, that's where you can see some people kind of fall apart too, because either they continue to try to fuel and they end up puking it back up or <laughs> they realize they can't fuel anymore. And then they're trying to slog through the canyons on a body. All of a sudden become fat adapted. Yeah. Yeah. I'm come, become fat adapted at mile 45 <laughs> at devil's thumb <laughs> and, and see if I can hang. Right. Good luck. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets tricky. And you know, I always, I guess, you know, one of the biggest questions I always get is like, yeah, well, what about the elite 5K, 10K guys mm. and why aren't they doing this or what, where does this fall for them? And, you know, I think, you know, they're definitely going to have a little different ratios during their intensity phases and things than I do. And, uh, but they can still have a fat adapted like mind frame, you know, they can still 
spend their recovery and spend their easy times of the base building phases uh, in a fat adapted state to kind of put that that framework in place and then bring the carbs back the same way I do uh, you know for these faster events and and then you know still reap the benefits of not um, accelerating the aging process or um, you know the like inflammation factors or the like if you're if they're in a similar scenario to where I was like the swelling and things like that and speed up the recovery so like um you know that's it's interesting it's you know you're always looking at the lifestyle and like what do car where where is the low for me it's always like what's the lifestyle <clears throat> and what's the lowest i can drop my carbs in that lifestyle to still maximize performance hmm. um without sacrificing you know bad adaptation hmm. Hmm. um so let's say you're doing some of the higher intensity training you're pointing for a shorter race or whatever. I don't know if a shorter race is a marathon for you or something, uh, but I imagine there's times. Uh, how do you do it? Are you doing it before your glycolytic workouts? Are you doing it to recover after? Mm-hmm. And what kind of carbs are you choosing when you're upping the carbs from your, your normal baseline? Yeah, so a lot of times it's just, uh, you know, I'll, if I have a big block coming up, um, I'll really, like maybe a day or so or two days before, I'll start kind of like inching it up a little bit, the carb intake a little bit. And then I'll, I'll try to be pretty strategic about using it during it as well, where I'm not like snacking on high levels of carbohydrate when, uh, when I, when they're going to be like heavy insulin responses for it. So like kind of that before, during and after type of mentality, once I get into the hard training block is usually a pretty good time frame to aim for. Um, for me, I aim for mostly like, uh, like what you consider low glycemic carbohydrate sources, like sweet potatoes, melons, berries, things that aren't going to generate a huge like insulin response in my mm-hmm. body. Um, so, you know, those are kind of the ones I'll, I'll turn to. Some of those like uh, water-based fruit sources that are much less super concentrate sugar, um, and then like some of those slower, slower uh, insulin response type carbohydrates, like maybe raw honey or you know like the sweet potato type. So we had this amazing result from the FASTER study. We had the fat-adapted group and the carbohydrate, high-carbohydrate-eating control, control, control group. Um, did these guys go home and uh, start Googling stuff? Yeah. And has there been a change in the, uh, the I guess, in the trends mm-hmm. in, the, in the ultra scene towards sure. fat adaptation? I think there's definitely been a trend moving, like a higher percentage moving over, at least experimenting with it. Um, it's always interesting because there's so much information to be learned. Uh, so you, it's, you, you run the risk of kind of being, like knowing just enough to kind of get, get yourself into trouble. <laughs> um, or you can kind of do it right and kind of see <laughs> the benefits of it. Um, so you're walking a fine line there. You know, you definitely get people who try to skirt the efficient, or skirt the process and kind of do a, not so good job of it and then you end up hearing about them and how it failed for them and stuff but uh uh-huh so what, what would that what would that look like is it is it someone who's maybe not doing such a good job cutting carbs and so they're in this this wavering zone where they're not getting enough to, to refuel like they did in the old days uh but still not good enough to be fat adapted yeah i mean i see i see people not let it take hold like uh is one big thing they don't give it that that month or so to kind of like you know, they don't, they don't, they don't treat it like a detox where, you know, like if you have someone who's like addicted to like a drug or something like that, you know, they don't just like decide the next hour right, I'm done with this. And then it's all roses after that. There's a good three, four weeks sometimes where they're miserable. You know, sometimes huh. they're checked into a facility so they can handle it. 
and you know it's 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 not quite that bad for most for for a dietary switch but uh there's definitely like days where you're like i don't feel as good as i used to i should i should scrap this and i see people giving up after a week or two and it's like <laughs> you got to give it a little more time than that um and then in the same hand you know you see you see some of the common pitfalls like um they they lower the carbs and then they also lower sodium and it's like mm. you, you got to be really keep a careful eye on those electrolytes when you're going low carb too um your body just seems to process more so you need to take in more um and then uh you know it's a lifestyle thing too like people look at it as like a dietary choice but there's so many other things that impact it too like um you know stress uh you know the type the way you're working out um you know things like things like that can negatively impact the way your body processes the fuels you're taking in. So if those things are kind of a mess too, hmm. like the diet isn't going to necessarily like fix all of that. So if you're stressing out nonstop and then you go high, high fat, low carb, um, you're not going to see a huge like benefit from it uh, because you're just not in a good healthy place to begin with. Hmm. So you get that from time to time too. And it stands to reason a sport of excess where, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like the, the gold standard is to go as far and as long as you can, like, you know, that you're going to have some individuals who are in a chronic state of stress and they need to also kind of get that figured out or look at it from a holistic approach as, as along with the dietary thing too, to kind of minimize stress on all areas to really make things work. Um, I know your popular coach, ZachBitter.com. You can find more information, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Especially ultra people and ultra people interested in being fat adapted and lowering that oxidative stress of what they're doing. Um, what are some of the, if you, if you wanted to offer some quick tips here at the end of the podcast to the, the average endurance athlete or ultra athlete mm -hmm. that's looking to make this transition? Yeah, I think, um, you know, patience is always key. You know, you have to give it some, give it a little bit of time. Like, you know, for me, it was a pretty fast transition, but you know, it was still two to four weeks where, where things were a little, little off. Um, so, so give it that, give it that, that much, that much time and effort. If you're going to do it, you know, give it, give it a good solid month to see where you're at first. And, you know, don't, don't head out trying to like break any records during that time either. Cause your, your goals get stressed low during that phase. That's going to make that metabolic switch happen a lot quicker. Um, and then just from the, the general training side of things too, like, um, go easy on your easy days and, you know, save, save those hard efforts, uh, for hard days, specific, well-planned ones that are meant to like move you forward as an athlete, um, as opposed to just kind of like ending up in that gray area the whole time. How about sleep? How much do you sleep here? You're in the middle of your elite career. You're 30 years <laughs> old. You're in your prime. Yeah. I think if you would average it out with the years, probably around eight and a half hours a night or so, you know, there's. There's time, there's nights where I'll do hard workouts and I'll sleep 10 hours and, mm -hmm. you know, there are days where, you know, I've got something to get to and I'm a little less than that, but I'm usually, I'm pretty sound at around eight and a half to nine hours usually is a good, good ballpark figure. And, um, I'm a good sleeper and I think that helps a lot, you know, when you can get to bed, get to bed and stay asleep, you know, it's a big, uh, big difference than if you're, you're kind of burning the candle on both ends, you know, that goes back to the stress standpoint thing too, like, you recover, the stress is mitigated to some degree. So what's up next for you? What are your big season goals here so, 2016? Yeah, yeah, I've got, um, I'm actually doing the Comrades Ultra Marathon in South oh, Africa. Oh, nice, and, all right. You know, that's the, the next big one on the, on the list. And um, then I don't uh, have another event on the schedule uh, until late in the season. So I'm looking to kind of like trickle some things in there, plan a couple more A races for the year after that. Uh, I think World 100Ks will probably be, for sure at the end of the year, November, December time frame. But 
It's always fun to, there's so many good events now, it's like not too hard to find something. <laughs> Zach Bitter, the fat burning beast coming alive from the pages of Primal Endurance book. Read all about him in there and also check out his blog, ZachBitter.com. Thanks for spending the time with us, man. I appreciate it. You're really on the forefront of this, this trend of fat adaptation. Those numbers from the FASTER study were phenomenal. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. You can Google that F-A-S-T-E-R study and see what these elites are doing on the cutting edge of uh, being able to, to burn massive amounts of fat and, and get, get uh, away from that long-standing, decades-long carbohydrate dependency that all the, the endurance athletes have been uh, succumbed to. Well, thanks for having me on, Brad. It was a blast. All right. Have a good day. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Thanks for listening to the Primal Endurance Podcast. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. I hope you enjoy this episode and encourage you to check out the Primal Endurance Mastery Course at primalendurance.fit. 
This is the ultimate online educational experience where you can learn from the world's great coaches and trainers, diet, peak performance, and recovery experts, as well as lengthy one-on-one interviews from several of the greatest endurance athletes of all time, not published anywhere else. It's a major educational experience with hundreds of videos, but you can get free access to a mini course with an ebook summary of the Primal Endurance Approach and nine step-by-step videos on how to become a Primal Endurance Athlete. This mini course will help you develop a strong basic understanding of this all-encompassing approach to endurance training that includes Primal-aligned eating to escape carbohydrate dependency and enhance fat metabolism, building an aerobic base with comfortably paced workouts, strategically introducing high-intensity strength and sprint workouts, emphasizing rest recovery and annual periodization, and finally cultivating an intuitive approach to training instead of the usual robotic approach of fixed weekly workout schedules. Just head over to primalendurance.fit and learn all about the course and how we can help you go faster and preserve your health while you're at it. 